Hello and welcome to another episode of the Carousel Podcast. I have with us today the distributist, who is, um, most of you will already know him, but really he's a founding member, I I would say, of our scene, an OG. The Prudentialist um, mentioned you as sort of his idol. And then I started digging a little deeper, I started hearing your name Uh, here and there. And I was like, oh man, this guy's like really legit. Um, And really like, you're like a a godfather almost of our scene. You do really long, but incredibly somehow engaging YouTube video essays, I believe they're called. Um, Yeah, I, I, yeah, I did. I got my start doing that, but the essay form has kind of been dropping off recently in popularity. I'm still going to do them, but. So is your 2022, like lessons from 2022, would you call that an essay? No, that's a live stream. Uh, essays are some things that I write out ahead of time or that I work off notes and then edit them. Uh, okay. You know, I, and I've, I've been known for really long ones, but th- that was really more of a form that was popular in 2016, I think. That's when I got my start. It just shows you, I mean, that's not that long ago, but, you know, it, you stick around for seven years and all of a sudden you're a godfather, right? So, Well, but it's not uh, just you know. your age. It's, it's also the way you... You, you seem to be very close to the source, is what I will say. You know, I, I don't know if you, your closest analog to me is Curtis. Like, I think that that's who you see. Yeah. Similar to me. I, I would call Curtis part of the first generation. I'm like, I'm sort of the post Gamergate people, even though I wasn't involved in the whole Gamergate thing at all. But the my interaction was kind of trying to discuss right wing ideas with the with the the disillusioned liberals that came out of the Gamergate era in 2014, 2016. And from there, sort of, you know, we kind of, there was this renaissance in NRX type thinking. So that's really what we embody these days. Were you a gamer? No, I I don't. I haven't played games since like 2013. Okay. Last, you know, game I played was Bioshock Infinite, which (laughs) convinced me that, you know, things were kind of going downhill, even though the game had a lot of great elements in it and uh no i was mostly just interested in it because i i i was i was it's kind of reacting to the 2012 election which was the first and probably the last time i'd ever voted for a republican and i was just watching the culture kind of go increasingly insane and i was curious if there would ever be a backlash to it and indeed there were backlashes but you know, they all were sort of defeated and crested. And, you know, the the most notable one was obviously Trump in 2016. And the other populist backlashes that occurred during that year, which all at this point have more or less crested. I'm looking at the 2012 election. That was... Romney versus uh, Obama, part two. Romney? That was Obama, too. Okay, so you voted Romney in that election. I had voted... You know, I'm an old person, so I had voted Democrat straight ticket until yeah. that election. And that's the first election that I was really approaching uh, politics as sort of an Orthodox Catholic. And I had got, I kind of realized that, well, I had realized that Obama was essentially a driver of the culture war. And I thought that, you know, this this culture war, which I had thought even until that time, was largely being driven by decisions made on the right. I began to realize in 2012 that the culture war was currently and always had been a project of the left. And they were, 
sort of cynically using this to uh, kind of uh, drive politics in a radical direction and kind of remake the cultural landscape. And uh, this is something that I thought kind of foolishly in 2012 could be resisted by some kind of popular pushback. But, you know, as we've seen again and again, it can't be. Why can't you? What can't be? You mean the the pro- progressive uh, culture war fighting, or are you, are you saying yeah? What, yeah. Oh, so, uh, so the, I mean, the, what I'm saying is like sort of progressive, <clears throat> the the progressive slow takeover of the institutions. Yeah. Okay. And and you know the, the, we call we now call wokeness, but has had many names yeah, over names. the course of American history. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it embodies a variety of policies that are at any given time incredibly unpopular, but continuously gain. Yeah. Steam. yeah. So, I mean, a classic one would be mass migration, which was never popular. Uh, the policy of mass migration that started with the Hart Seller Act or the 1965 Immigration Act was misrepresented when it came into being. And the product of it, which was sort of a large increase in immigration to the United States and also sort of uh, an increase in the, the the locations or the the origins of immigration uh that policy has never been popular and it continuously just gets but it's untouchable yeah. the same thing with affirmative action the same thing with sort of what I call the strong elements of the civil rights revolution that that were never really presented to us in school but are nonetheless a core part of the civil rights revolution and in many ways, the more relevant part. You encounter them in your local HR department, but these are very much a part of law. The, the same thing when it comes to any number of the sort of developments in sexual culture. Uh, these things were not popular. They had negative results that are quite demonstrable. And yet they're untouchable. They're fixtures of a society. that They're not up for debate in any meaningful way. And to the extent that they're pushed back on by people like Mitt Romney or Donald Trump, and they're both kind of futile, but in very different ways, uh, the system just kind of shrugs them off. There, There's this really radical immune response that occurs across all different elements of the government, both formal and informal, to quash these kind of popular rebellions against the the, the direction that the that our elites you know the, our intellectual elites want us to go in yeah and uh you know i mean this is this is because america you know this is sort of instilling this forum i mean san francis or yarvin is all a lot of different people came up with this idea but this is because our reigning oligarchs our, our ruling class our brahmin caste have a certain religion yeah and it's progressive and yeah, it's progressive. And this religion likes going left. And and not only does does the religion, based on historical properties that are unique to it, like going left and see itself as a left-going force, uh, sort of the nature of, of left the left wing's constant uh problematizing of different social elements, it's deconstruction it's deconstruction dragon slaying right it's yeah. dragon slaying it it needs dragons to constantly slay that comes from mold bug i mean that's yeah it, and it manufactures them it, yeah, it, it yeah. destroys social institutions that work and that are stable and then, and then the hero you know they, they get yeah and then them. and civil rights well, you you get to create jobs specifically you get to create managerial jobs yeah, either in 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 the government proper or or in sort of subsidiary institutions and you know the 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 number of these things is sort of legion. You know, a good example might be the college institution of college itself as sort of uh, 
you know, something that everyone went to. I mean, this is people are going to college now and they learn, they know more than your average high school student coming out of school in the fifties. Yeah. And certainly they write worse. And so, and then they come out with, you know, $30,000 of debt that needs to be managed as well. Right. And so these are kind of, they, they create problems and then they, 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 they create the solution to those problems. And this, this creates, a, a sort of left going force, a force of entropy that's slowly devouring our our social order. And you know, this is something that well, obviously Curtis Yarvin has is detailed better than I ever have. So no, 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 no. I I just think uh, it's we're diving right in. So you've described in the past. I, I was listening again to your. I would highly recommend for people who are just tuning in. We're we're jumping right in here, mm-hmm. but we're. Uh, I would recommend your end of twenty twenty two. The oh. things from 2022 stream it is so oh, good yeah. and it's four <laughs> like four hours long but i just went on like a two-hour hike today because i had to prepare for this anyway and i just was listening to it i did not i like kept first of all how do you go back on youtube you can't you have to like press your thumb on it i never really use youtube i'm totally positive. oh yeah it's so annoying well. like, you have to like move your thumb around youtube is basically legacy technology at this stage but you know it, it was first up to it was first off the line, so it's what we everyone uses, yeah. right? So anyway, I was like slipping, sliding around your thing because I kept wanting to go back and hear what you were saying. But at <laughs> one point, you said, and I couldn't go back, so I had to like listen to it. But uh, you kept saying this thing about the waveform of the populist rebellions. You're like, we crest like waves. It builds up and builds up. It crests and then it slams against this force that you're talking about, which is this yeah. undefeatable progressive march that seems to never end. Or you know, I'd be curious to hear when you think that started, because it's unclear to me. I mean, I think most people would probably say it starts in the the progressive march starts when that's FDR, right? Like pretty much. That's, that's when it takes over the United yeah. States government. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the well, I mean, you know, that's where our current iteration of these things. The thing is that the United States government didn't really exist in the same way yeah. it did. And, and if you take Curtis Yarvin's model what what we call the cathedral is is a splinter branch of protestantism that comes out of new england and these places like harvard university and it kind of evolves and it evolves with the nature of the federal government from sort of a a personal transal religion early 19th century to sort of a uh you know an internationalist but still recognizably christian um, missionary religion, a uh, Republican missionary religion in the late 19th century, very in tune with the post-Civil uh, War uh, style government we have, to then it being sort of a more or less secular, uh, you know, atheist kind of pseudo-Christian uh, religion with all its kind of proper elements discarded in, in the form of things like the U.S. State Department and the, the various different NGOs the U.S. State Department birthed after World War II to sort of denazify Europe and then to kind of, you know, I mean, let's not mince words here, rule Europe in, in, in almost yeah. every meaningful way. Right. And uh, then... Um, uh, and that that really is what set the tone for things like the civil rights uh, revolution, which was very much a product of, of this class. And you wow, can so read you're things. Putting you know. it all at, you're saying it's all the wasps. You're saying it's all the kind of lefty wasps. 
Well, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, I, I don't know who what was the Greek. Was it Heraclitus who said this? I forget. But he says you can never step in the same river twice. Right. So, you know, or like like this ship of thesis, like this, this ship that started sailing from yeah. the landing of the Mayflower well, right, though, has stopped yeah. in many places and many different peoples have uh, kind of amended parts to it. You know, and if you talk to people on the very far right, I'm sure they will, uh, you know, notice a certain non-Christian yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, <laughs> right. who made very critical contributions to this ship in the early 20th century. Well, so, but, but I think that the most relevant elements are are still, they, they still have to do with this this idea of, of sort of secularized Christian universalism that, yeah. that emerges from New England in, in sort of post-revolutionary war. Well, what, I think the other ones are, 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 you know, not, I mean, I don't know. You could argue over, you know, you kind of catch mimetic diseases and certain pathologies get magnified, right? So so if you have a reason to really hate Christianity and, and that, that gene enters the gene pool in the early 20th century, then, you know, it, it could mutate, it could get magnified yeah. through this sort of a subconscious process, a subconscious institutional process that keeps on going yeah. until, until you are where we are, where we are now. So there you go. Well, you're definitely right that, so when you really look behind the curtain, like it's funny, are you familiar with the show Yellowstone? I mean, everyone talks about it. I'm aware that it's sort of about these Westerners. Yellowstone does the same thing that quite a bit of our like like current propaganda as art that you're talking about. Like also the show, the the movie um, Glass Onion also does this. Yellowstone provides a imaginary world in which the elites in a given place are all the right wing version of the thing you're talking about. Yeah, so in, yeah, in, the, in the world of Yellowstone, all the ranchers in Montana that own all the giant ranches are actually like Republican, like, you know, hardcore Republican guys. But and like, you know, classic kind of populist Republican cowboys. In actuality, I know who owns those ranches. Those ranches mm-hmm. are all owned by exactly the people you're talking about. It's all. The OK, people yeah. People like coastal shit lives. Yeah. Like, you know, the big name families that are now the ones behind these billion dollar corporations, you know, like Kel- I'm not Kellogg, but like families like Kellogg, these names you've heard of, they yeah. own all those ranches. The, Kellogg, classic them. wasp, person, classic yeah, right. wasp, exactly. like internationalist, yeah. like, you know, yeah. Exactly. So to like put it at the foot of the Jews, I agree. It's like you can't do that. Yeah. And, and what you're saying is it this thing goes way back further. But if it is a river, you can't step in twice. We have the ability to name a fucking river. We know what a river is. But the thing that you're talking about yeah. is the Leviathan that if how the if it's just a thing that exists, how can we not say it isn't God? Because if we have no way to doesn't God want it like or it's Satan? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, the, the problem is, is that as this thing has grown in power and prominence, it, it has sort of made bets uh about what the future was going to look like and what the human race could do and how human organization should play out and and specifically over the course of really the last 60 years it's made a number of bets that are just bad bets these are these these visions of the future of humanity just do not correspond to reality or human thriving my favorite one of these was the sexual revolution yeah the sexual revolution just does not work Mm -hmm. i mean yeah. The feminists have been at this project of coming up uh, with a plan 
of what sort of a healthy middle-class family life should look like for the average person. And, and our two solutions are, uh, well, you know, we like to be rich and then have polygamy among a bunch of people who are billionaires. Or, you know, we're going to tell sort of no, noble savage tales about the broken families of sort of the, the third world subpopulations that exist in the first world or just the third world populations. Uh, these sort of ghetto broken families are, aren't even a good representation of the native cultures that they come from. They are very much families that are broken by modernity. But because they're so distant, you can tell sort of just those stories where all, all of these, you know, horrible situations that lead to a lot of human misery are actually sort of uh, preternaturally progressive dreams of a, of a post-masculine future. Really, what they are is just disasters. Wait, but I understand the part that you're saying of the elites wanting to have a, you know, poly whatever thing. But you're saying they're creating this noble, noble savage myth of the broken families of the underclasses. But I'm not seeing a lot of that. Like, I don't turn on the TV and see like oh the you know the the black father you know 75 percent of black children oh, you don't you don't see anything about like the black matriarch who's the perfect feminist icon or you know I that, that, but aren't you that, saying that they're saying that it's a tragedy aren't they trying to oh you're saying they're no i mean it's the brokenness i get it, i get it. they're they're saying that the brokenness is externally applied to it from yes. you know the macrocosmic culture and it is true in a sense yeah but yeah. part of the way that the tragedy is applied to is that there is a traditional form in these societies that worked that was, if not patriarchal, more patriarchal than it is now. That form was destroyed by, you know, either just sort of the, the implicit effects of, of modernization or explicit attempts by, you know, the, the mainstream establishment to break these things. And then... You know, what what has emerged in the interim are these kind of you know incredibly degraded human societies that you know you see in places these very depressing places, and th these are not examples of human thriving, and and these places were thriving. <laughs> well, I mean, again, thriving is obviously relative. They are still were very poor, but they were better off like a hundred years ago, and you know, even in, even with sort of the description discrimination that existed, the, these places had more ordered existences. And uh, they didn't have penicillin necessarily, but but they didn't have uh, you know this 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 family destruction where half the kids were being raised outside of uh, a stable family life, which has huge impacts on children. And so this is an example of you know the the cathedral as as you know reactionaries call it, it starts getting overconfident and starts betting against reality. Until the point where they're literally asking you to just assert the opposite of what's plainly in front of your eyes. So the Atlantic, for instance, yeah. a few months ago ran an article yeah. where they were implying basically, and I think NPR ran one of these articles too. So these are sort of like the Atlantic and NPR. These are major mouthpieces. I mean, NPR is, you know, it, it literally operates under a stipend from the federal government under the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And so, you, but but these are core mouthpieces of the philosophy that you know we associate with the State Department in the universities, and and they literally tell their audience that like, it's it's more than likely that 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 men have no advantage against women in sports so long as they identify as women. 
And like they're telling people that with a straight face, and so, so at this point, fat is you know fat is you know ugly is beautiful, freedom is slavery. You know they're doing very classic 1984 uh, things, but you're saying that this is one strain that results from the sexual revolution that is extremely perverse. That this is I, I, this is one path how, they went I mean, down that's really bad. That doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because it's just it's not true. It's obviously yeah. not true, well, right? You know, obviously we could. You know, I think that there are a lot of things that aren't true about what we say about democracy, right? But but our democracy, despite yeah, the fact works. that it doesn't work for the reason we say it does, like it is part of a system that does work. Oh. America, America between 1900 and, you know, obviously some communities start working a lot less well in the 70s. But, you know, really up until, you know, the, the, the later 2000s, the stability of the American world was was incredible and um and and so that system worked despite the fact that it might be based on a lie about how humans behave it it was that lie didn't contradict just plain reality and now some of these 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 sort of lies or these untruths they're telling they just flatly contradict the reality we can see right in front of our eyes. So, and... then, okay, so let me just ground people for one second. What you're, mm-hmm. what you're, I'm following barely. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's so all slow down. I'm so, No, no, you're so fucking smart it, that it's like, it's, it's great. It's I'm incredible. I mean, it's like, you're, you've already just like put me into such a world of red pilling. Most of what I do on this podcast is just complain about shit, you know, like, Oh, look at, okay, no, look no at the problem. woke advertising. Whereas you're actually explaining what's happening. And I think it's really genius and really accurate, but I just want people to understand what you're saying. You're saying that there's this force of progressive liberalism. This is very mold buggy in, but you're putting it yeah. in a really I, I'm taking this from Moldbug, but you can find similar things in like sure, Sam sure, Francis sure. or it's James Burnham. You know, this comes from a lot of different people. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a running force of progressivism that has been running through society for a long time. It's seemingly unstoppable. It seems to come from originally maybe rooted in this um, Protestant lefty kind of thing that just was with the country from the beginning, but it's been mutated. The Jews hopped on and after the diaspora. Now, today, we've gotten to this world where they keep winning, they keep doing it, but is what you're saying it's getting stale because some of the paths that they've gone down, particularly the sexual one for EG, are you saying we're reaching the end of this river because things are starting to, they're starting to ask us to say things that are obviously not true? Or have they always done that? Have they always done that? And it's just this is the latest version. Well, I mean, they're they're starting to. Governments will always ask people to say things that are not like technically true, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, like not right. technically true is not the same thing as saying you no, to assert something church, that isn't the true. Yeah. Right? The church. yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, societies yeah. have religions, and yeah. you know, so uh, you know. Is it true that George Washington never told a lie? Yeah. Is it true that George Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves in the way that you hear? I mean, you know, there's obviously there is the Emancipation Proclamation that's a real document, right? But like, is it true in the way you learn about it in, you know, high school history class? No, it's not. Uh, These things are kind of like exaggerations, not quite true, getting at something that's more sophisticated. But there's an interest in doing that and then just saying like, oh, well, you know, this 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 destroyed community is actually a great place to live because, 
you know, it's more diverse or the, you know, the, the, the Sweden, which is experiencing sort of a crime ac- epidemic, historically speaking, it's been, it's government's never been better or crime has, has never been lower in New York city than it is right now after 2020. Uh, these things are just demonstrably false. We can see them. And moreover, they have a huge impact on our lives. Yeah. Another thing that has a huge impact on our lives, like there's been a collapse of the dating market. This is another, this is something that we never talk about, but people just don't pair off anymore. There, there's been a slow decline of the marriage market, but but sometime around when the younger millennials came of age, specifically in the era of social media, this decline of the marriage market corresponded in a steep uh, sort of collapse of the dating and, and mating markets to the point now where it's just utterly smashed. And it, it's questionable how anybody, like a significant per, per, per percentage of my generation, the millennials, how any of them are going to pair off and have families before a, a large amount of them become functionally infertile. That's an open question now. And you can't sweep this under the rug. You can't sweep an entire generation just not having children under the rug and and claim that this is one of the blessings of liberty or feminism or civil rights or whatever. Uh, these are things that are going to just capsize your society if they're allowed to persist. And and, and you know and, and as we demonstrated, the, the woke sort of what I don't know who did Elon Musk call it the woke mind virus. This has permeated institutions that are training things like doctors and it's permeated research. And so it, it kind of, it, it's not, it's hard to see where, where the sort of, it, in the nineties, it was clear that this PC stuff, we called it PC back in the nineties, that it was sort of consigned to particular areas of the culture, like university campuses and really only certain departments and university campuses. But, but now thanks to the magic of strong civil rights, it's everywhere. And and these sort of assertions, uh, you know, the, the they they kind of um, cloak any number of untruths. Yeah. So, but what I'm trying to get at, sorry, there's a helicopter going by. Uh, what I'm trying to get at here is okay. So we're we're saying I'm trying to like follow the the line of mm-hmm. this story. So we're talking about, for example, the dating market. I heard you on your podcast. You talked about the manosphere. You yeah. obviously, as a religious man, are not a man of I, I, and you Yeah, I come into conflict so with them a lot. Yeah, uh, we have the same kind of enemies. Yeah, so I, I try know. not to draw knives. Yeah. But you know, it's kind of it's kind of like um, you know the Americans in the Soviet Union in World War II. We're kind of looking across from each other, going like, "Well, you said this alliance." Totally, you said this uh, totally you know. genius thing about them, which yeah. I think was—I have never heard anybody say this, and it was so true. And I've always wanted to say this to them, which is—I can't remember how you phrase it, but basically, what you were saying was, once you start talking about the prostitute thing or the cheating thing in public. Yeah. You've ruined, oh, yeah. ruined the you're you're fucking up. Yeah. You are fucking yourself up. You, you're telling the truth, but you're fucking yourself up, and you're fucking the next generations up. You know, like you're. So, yeah. Sorry, sorry for swearing, by the way. I don't actually. No, no, no. This is a classic. This is a great example of a lie that was kind that was of, good. That was. I'm not good. It's, none of these lies are good, right? <laughs> because 
you know, if, if you go back and if you go to France in, you know, the eighth century, yeah. you know, in the time of Charlemagne, right? Uh, I think that, you know, Frenchmen having mistresses just wasn't a thing. Charlemagne had mistresses, very notably, but this was heavily frowned upon by the church. And they only cut the exception because he was literally, you know, he had them by the balls to, you know, speak crudely, right? But by the 19th century, when France was secularized, like every well-to-do French gentleman had a mistress to the point where there's literally like a musical, like you can watch the classic musical Gigi about French men having like these, like there's a whole class of women just designed to be rich men's mistresses. Uh, and you know the, the 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 reason why this kind of worked is that uh, the 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 ruling class of France agreed to be one hundred percent behind monogamy in their proclamations, even as they subverted it behind closed doors, because they understood that if monogamy was sort of universally abandoned. Uh, the the French society would fall apart, and you know, in the same way that polygamous societies always fall apart right. because right. men can't get married if all the women get absorbed by the upper ten percent of men, and you just you explode into war. And so, I mean, you know, this is what you know Plato might call a noble lie. Yeah. Uh, but 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 now, you know, what what the pickup artists want to do, and what the feminists have done for the left is they they take sort of these see the realities and they want people to sort of proclaim them as a religious principle yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and like you know i can't you know e- even if i'm forced if, like if you get me by the hand and you just like twist my arm as a catholic and force me to accept the fact that king charlemagne is just going to have a bunch of women on the side and i can't object because if i do my in my monasteries will get burned to the ground by vikings because he's not going to defend them anymore and like maybe except that but if it's just like if you're proclaiming from the pulpit that you know all of a sudden everyone should just go into a sexual free-for-all yeah. because it's whoever gets the most gets the most and of course the guys with the most money will yeah uh you know you're, you're you don't have a society you don't have a functional uh, order anymore and you know this is this is essentially what, what what we're doing is we can't we can't maintain the level of hypocrisy we're ex- be, being accepted to embrace anymore, and the whole thing is kind of crumbling again. Yeah, the way I put it is there are there are things men know that women can never know, and there are things rich men know that regular men can never know, and it's just you just have to accept that, and that's always the way it's been, it's always the way it's going to be, and trying to like ferret your way into, Marx tried to do it too, Marx was like, well, you guys are doing it, everybody should do it, you know, like he says that in the Communist Manifesto, he says community of wives, you guys do it, we should have community of wives too, right? Well, there, there, there's a, there's a society. I mean, there, there are, you know, I'm kind of a believer in cyclical history and at very sort of primordial stages of civilization, you can have instances where people are like just on average, very, very moral. Yeah. Like the, 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 the rate of adultery, uh, like to take our own, you know, stream, so to speak, our own puritanical origins. If you go back to Plymouth Rock, like the number of men who committed adultery would have been absolutely. Absolutely minimal. Well, they were also uh, like relatively, but weren't wasn't that was a so they weren't raiding. They were raiding and banging the Indians for sure. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a good. I'm yeah. sure that like some some settler, obviously the 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 admixture with Native Americans was certainly hot and heavy in the late 19th century. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in the early Plymouth Rock period, like the penalties for male adultery were, I think they might have been death. Actually, yeah. Now, this was not a society that that turned a blind eye to it because it was in this sort of 
primordial level of religious enthusiasm and then christianity was not a young religion at that stage it was 1500 years old but but the the civilization so to speak was and they were experiencing sort of this new renaissance when everyone was sort of fervently in belief of this principle and 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 you know and, and it was expected to adhere to it in every element of their lives and you know by the time you get to you know where we are now I mean, no one believes in this religion anymore. Uh, no one even believes in the secularized progressive version, if they're really honest about it. I would maintain. Uh, of of what? Of which religion? Sorry, I mixed up. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of uh, mixing my metaphors a little yeah. bit. But uh, Christianity has very, I mean, I'm, I am a believer in Christianity. But the number of elite believers in Christianity is very small in the present oh, yeah. age. Furthermore, in in Christianity's successor religion, wokeism, uh, there are very few sincere, intelligent believers of wokeism, I would maintain, too. Most of them are cynical actors or yeah. sort of, I, I don't want to be sort of, I guess I can't be, but you know, a lot of them are just sort of these hysterical women who, uh, they're, they're gravitating towards some ideology, and this is the one closest to hand. So, you know, because they're looking for something to sort of emote over and George Floyd died this week, you know, it's going to be the cult of George Floyd for the next three years. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's how it works. But, but, you know, when it comes to sort of leaders, you know, who are the pe- people who really believe in this woke stuff? Uh, sincerely, you know, one of my favorite characters from the last year was, I mean, are you, did you follow the Sam Bankman Freed saga? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. You yeah, did. So text. like, that's not the text. Yeah, okay. So like, I do this on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's very progressive, right? He is one of yeah. these people who comes from Palo Alto, California, which yeah. is like progressive apex Society. He goes to school in MIT, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Like again, you know, the the apex of sort of like cathedral Boston Brahmin culture, you know, a very own waspy kind of puritanical uh, institution. Uh, again, that's been now thoroughly wokeified. And um, you know, you we have because he was audited and because everyone seized seized his records. Uh, we now have um, you know conversations between him and colleagues going like, okay, like. We all know this woke stuff is bullshit, but we have to go through the motions and say it, you know, so that we can get our capital to like, you know, manage the world and rule the yeah. world. And then he said he, he ends it with, it really sucks the people who get screwed over by it. <laughs> I, I know, yeah, of course. Like, like, but you know, we're too rich to, right? It's all yeah, those uh, it's, it's all it's those middle class yeah. people, right? You know? But we're 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 sort of above the uh, above the parapet with this one. And you know, this is the attitude and this is the the religion is dead when all of your elites just don't believe in it anymore it, it it's they they embrace it cynically and it's it's really for sort of the upper middle class to sort of emote over and get caught up in these sort of moral crusades uh, we want to save black lives by increasing the crime rate by 30% and killing off thousands of black people like that was the last moral crusade I mean, I, I want to golf clap that one, guys. You did a great job saving Black lives <laughs> with with the cult of of Saint George Floyd that oh. that worked out wonderfully. Um, and fact, uh, you know, this is no one believes this. Uh, you know, no. The fact I wanted to throw in before I'm at no was is that the black marriage rate. I'm sure you know this was yeah. oh, wasn't it 75 percent in 1940 it, or something, and now it's 25 percent black. Oh, sorry, yeah. out of wedlock. Now, only 25% of black children are born in wedlock. 50 yeah. years ago, it was like 75% is what I'm trying to say. So it's like... Yeah, at the end of World War II, you know, the black community was intact. Like you could... Yeah. It was it was, it was highly organized around religious institutions. Yeah. Right. And, and now, 
the black community is basically a complete client of the university and leftist activist classes. It comes together when the Democratic Party needs it to come together. And then short of that, it disappears. Yeah. Because yeah. if I was if I were Malcolm X and I wanted, you know, I do want African Americans to be independent and, and healthy and religious and, and have good families and, and 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 dignified jobs and have their own land and be masters of their own destiny. But if but if I were somebody who who wanted this to happen, I would be running around trying to get somebody to stop this enormous crime rate that's consuming an enormous number of young black men's lives. And that's been going on for two years now, (laughs) but nobody cares about that because it doesn't have a political benefit to the democratic party to talk about this or get it solved. Or, you know, another one would be like, if I cared about the, I do care about that from a community, but if I was a African American who was like had skin in the game, I would, want to reduce the black obesity rate which is like that must be it. like african americans are you know people don't talk about this on the right they are going to be demographically endangered because their birth rates collapsing it's like everyone else's and part of that is is the fact that that their 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 population is so unhealthy yeah and you know and these were the these would be the issues that we would tackle if we were interested in in actually uh, you know, being a steward of, of this community, but we're not. What yeah. we are a steward of is a certain grievance politics that's useful for a certain type of elite people in universities. And, you know, and because of that, you know, I mean, and good luck. And, and, and but, you know, for right-wingers, it doesn't behoove us to kind of push ourselves forward as like, oh, well, we're going to fix things. Uh, we can't fix things. You, you can't really fix things for other people's communities. Uh, you can just not screw with them right yeah, that's or or provide them with you know order right but um yeah you know i don't know it doesn't really you know the national review has been trying to do this the democrats are the real racist for years now and it does, never works because no, of this it reason, never right? works for the exact reason that you said already which is that this strain is the things that defeat this strain are never logic you know, the, the logic never defeats this this thing that you're talking about that you just I want I, in the beginning, I said mm-hmm. waveform. So in, in your podcast or your sorry, your uh, stream, you had said that the way that populism works is it's like a wave and it, it can kind of hit on this progressive thing. And but the problem is it's short. And then it loses interest. It drains out very quickly. It hits it and then it drains away. It hits yeah. it and it drains away. And so what they can do is assert constant, endless, you know, pressure like a wall. And we're just kind of like slamming up against this thing and we can't really sustain pressure. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's like a big problem. So, yeah. so it, like what, what I, when I see this wave, like, that's kind of what you're talking about. Like, if if the wall responded to logic or rationalism, which arguably they did in the Enlightenment, right? Arguably they did in the beginning. Now they, uh, yeah, maybe, <laughs> right? But yeah, I mean, we had a much more kind of um, pliable ruling class back then, I guess you could say, right? Well, because they were all writing each other long letters, you know, they were all like yeah. trying to get to the core of it, and that's probably you know where the this all started. But I guess my question is. If logic doesn't hurt this thing, what do, and and you're saying this waveform is a bad thing because we can't we can't pressure them back the way that they can pressure us. 
what pressure can we assert on them? I mean, do we want to embrace our, our nature as a wave where we're like, we just want to get bigger and taller waves. So it's like Trump times 10. It's, you know, uh, CRT times 10 next time. It's, you know, we have yeah. these certain things that win. Occasionally. I mean, we, we get the problem through. is the waves getting weaker, right? So uh, <laughs> the wave is getting, you know, yeah. this is, I mean, but the, the way is like, for instance, you know, the, the amount of populist energy you had behind Reagan was a thousand i mean did you see how reagan won and yeah, he, he run overwhelming like and even that was less than nixon you know i think tucker carlson had a segment on just how popular nixon was and nixon was sort of the the iteration 1.0 of the anti you know anti-civil rights basically right or anti-strong civil rights right because i'm sure nixon would be fine with things like brown v board he might have some caveats with with the stuff like the equal opportunities commission although you know he, he did, you know, reluctantly ratify like affirmative action, right? Um, but but reluctantly, as as my Nixon fans have have constantly reminded me. But you know, these these characters, these populist surges were enormous back in the day, and they've gotten successfully weaker. And uh, the 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 only way to do this, the only way that this is going to be overcome, is by increasing focus. Now. Focus. The, th- the thing is, yeah. Focus. Well, for instance, like CRT, the reason why Christopher Rufo is successful is that he's, I mean, you know, he's he's focusing, it, it, he still has the same problem that he's trying to use populist energy, yeah. which can't do a sustained push. Yeah. But it, at least he has the targets in the right direction. He understands that the problem is the universities, right? The problems aren't specific people, right? You know, if this were the 1980s, we'd be complaining about, you know, some specific person who said something ridiculous, like Angela Davis. She was a boogeyman in the 80s, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, or, or, you know, various different, like, front figure pieces. This is not the problem. The problem is the institution itself, the other thing that's going on here too is that you know if we're, if we're, if we're treating the oligarchy or the cathedral as a wall, uh, the oligarchy is getting weaker. So the waves are getting weaker, and the the, the, the wall is getting weaker. And the wall is not the wall is not getting weaker because it, it is. You said well, logic doesn't matter, right? Well, kind of. Logic does not matter in the sense that you can't walk up to somebody and argue them out of their beliefs. Uh, but if somebody w- w- has to wake up every day and convince himself that black is white, ugliness is beauty, you know, men are just as strong as women are, you know, and and some men, you know, some men menstruate and have babies, you know, and it's very important, like gender doesn't exist, but it's very important that we surgically amputate healthy organs so that this non-existent thing can be fixed. Like that, you know, and, and any variety, and you know, crime isn't up and, you know, all, all of these other absurdities, right? Uh, those sort of logical absurdities are going to slowly erode people's beliefs in this promise to the point where the elite is just basically cynically ruling and using these ideological preconceptions as a pretense. And they'll have their howling little, uh, you know, red guard to, to borrow like a term from the cultural revolution. Also, which a lot of were, were women back in the Chinese example, <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the, these red guards will will be will 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 exist, but the the leadership and the intellectuals will be completely checked out because nobody will believe in it anymore, and, and that's when the the barrier, the oligarchy barrier, starts weakening and weakening and weakening, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's sort of, um, you know, to again mix my metaphors, sort of like a a, a a red giant expands, but it gets weaker as it expands. 
And, uh, you know, the, the problem here is that the populist energy just can't do anything independently of itself. It, it's going to create a big hubbub, uh, you know, with the CRT stuff. Like they'll illegalize CRT. Then the teachers unions are going to call CRT something else. Yeah. And then they're going to go it's do the same. It's not going to actually do anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, Rufo knows that he needs to get rid of like the university system. But Rufo can't get rid of the university system because he doesn't have the political energy to do that. Uh, the parents want the immediate problem of these sort of crazy teachers to go away. Uh, and and the, the the obvious compromise is for those teachers to pretend like they've gone away and then keep on doing what they're doing at, at a, a sort of like more quiet level, um, you know, which is essentially what happened in the 90s with, you know, the original pushback against PC then. Yeah. Um, Wait, what was, but, you know, that's, you know. Red, what are red guards? And I'm actually very intrigued by that because I actually, oh, uh, yeah, we're well, so this is something. So, in, in the in well, people don't remember this, but so people are aware that this has happened in many different forms and under communism, but the most prominent one is China. So, everyone knows that in like 1946, Mao took over China and made it communist. And in the 50s, he had a successful, like, he had these like five year plans that were total disasters and killed a bunch of people. But people don't forget after this, in sort of the early sixties, um, this is this is this bizarre element of, of Chinese history. Uh, Mao organized, or, or you know, uh, Chairman Mao and uh, a bunch of hardcore communists inside the Communist Party of China. They organized a communist revolution inside a country that was already communist. <laughs> this is called the Cultural Revolution. And so they organized these battalions of revolutionary students, an enormous number of whom who were women, and they would go and hunt down people who were insufficiently dedicated to the revolution and, and punish them, sometimes murdering them uh, for, for counter-revolutionary thoughts and then shipping them off to the countryside to work as, as and oftentimes die as laborers. And, and, and you know, there was um, a recently a great science fiction book that starts in the Cultural Revolution that I've been reading recently called The Three-Body Problem. Uh, it's it's science fiction, but but the the stuff they say about the cultural revolution is 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 real. Um, it, it does remind you of this wokeness stuff. These, these they, they call them struggle sessions. Yeah, you may have heard yeah. that. Yeah, um, and struggle, that, that's yeah. So the, the red guard would organize these things called struggle sessions, where they would uh, they would be like mock trials, where they would put people on trial uh, by by mob justice for supposedly counter revolutionary thoughts or or actions or speech. And um, it, was a, it was a revolution that was organized by the accident government <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to be more in keeping with the wills of the government. And oh, wow. it's, it's bizarre when you think about it, right? Exactly how it worked, right? But this, this literally happened in China. Um, and it was women. It's like the same exact thing as now. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Was it all women? No. But like. You always when you see pictures of these cultural red guards, like half of them are like these women students who are you know dressed up in the Madame Mao outfit with the cap and everything, and like you know, stringing up some shop owner, you know, nailing like a, a hat to his head or something like that that says like I'm a bourgeois counter revolutionary bourgeoisie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all of these things. It, it's just um, you know, I think you, you also see if you watch the movie The Last Emperor, the last scene it depicts the cultural revolution. Um, and uh, nothing about Chinese. I, I know yeah. absolutely nothing about about the Chinese Revolution at all. Like that's a total blank spot in the map. So that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't realize there was the mini the mini revolution inside the 
the big revolution. So did that ever get any justice? Was there any, or is that, they're still in power, basically. <laughs> it's the same. Well, I mean, I mean, it burnt out, right? Yeah, and then yeah. people, can, I mean, I think the current crop of rulers, like Xi Jinping, were people who were just like, okay, we never want that to happen again. Let's just rule China like a non-ideological technocracy, yeah. right? So in, in many ways, you can see the current government as being kind of a response to it. But the response to the the Cultural Revolution was just to have like basically a king. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and obviously there's like, you know, the, the whole Tiananmen Square thing, right? That that they tamped down as well. Uh, yeah. You know, which was more that was more of a revolution to try to become more like the United States, uh, but you know it was just it was just completely cracked down on, obviously. But you know, right? Um, you know, the, the, China is an incredibly non-ideological state right now. You know, it, it is incredibly technocratic. Nobody, the, the pretense that they're some kind of Marxist state is no one believes it. No one believes it. Absolutely right. Now, the problem is I just I don't think that that's possible for our society. You know, our, our type of society just is not going to be able to do that. So what, okay, returning to our wave and our wall, you're saying that the, the wall is becoming a red dwarf, which is like, it's getting too gaseous and thinning out because it's getting bigger, whatever. I do find yeah, it- Yeah, the dimensions I'm talking about- it's increasing the number of people who are involved in it yeah, as right. believers, well, but yeah, the yeah. the sort of like the believability of its proposition is getting watering, watering down, down, right? Yeah. So it's like the, the global American empire, right? Their ability to wield soft power has decreased among elites as their hard power and their reach has increased, right? And and, and so because of that, it, it, the, the the empire is becoming very very brittle, yeah, very very brittle, and and the edges like. The edges are showing signs of kind of breaking away, and right. you know who who knows how long this is going to last, right? But but all we can say that is the nature of power in the West is changing rapidly. Have there ever been in any society ever? Have there ever been this many women in the power structure as there are in America today? Um, well, that's a good question. Probably not. I mean, I this mean, is the most feminized, other than like examples that are hard to trace in like ancient Greece where people tell stories of these things, right? Uh, it, it's hard to kind of come up with another analogy. I've been told there were societies that were functionally ruled by eunuchs, and, <laughs> and you know, but I don't know. I feel like that's exaggeration a little bit, <laughs> right? Uh, maybe, maybe it's not right, but this is certainly we're testing like limits of how many women can actually operate inside positions of government and power. Yeah, I mean, are you are you aware of this whole longhouse metaphor? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of. Hmm. Well, the thing is, is that with BAP, it's always kind of hard to tell about how much is sort of allegorical and how much is sort of like hard history, because he, he, he again, it's always hard to tell whether he's talking historically or metaphorically. Yeah. And, you know, his vision of the longhouse, you know, which I kind of, I'm writing an essay kind of about females and power. Yeah. Uh, I finished writing it. I'm, I'm trying to get it out. Um, uh, find time to record it. But um, it, he, uh he he's for your audience here he spins a story about late stage civilization where you know there there's no more wars to fight and women just take over the functioning of society and the main goal of the longhouse is just kind of like make sure everyone's continuously kind of weak well uh, too weak to resist and watch right it's a panopticon and watch yeah they're always it's total monitoring of uh yeah 
surveillance. And, and everything is political. Everything is political and not in the sense that, like, you know, we're going to wield power for the greater good. Yeah. But everything is political and everything is sort of a contest of needs and wills. Yes. yes. And that's ultimately governed by some kind of, like, you know, class that determines who has the, like, the strongest needs. Yeah. It's an entirely voice-based system. And this is always, like, Richard Hanania, before he kind of fell back into the realm of shit library, had this great essay in 2021 that said, uh, female tears win in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, I, and, I literally and, tweeted that exact yeah. thing today because you said it on your... On your well, Twitter. I didn't invent it. It's I know, I know. It was Hanania, uh, who I don't even know who uh, you know, no, but, but I, it's... I, it, it's real, though. I will tell you that. That, that is the longhouse, right? That's the longhouse long in one sentence. Right? So most men have never been through this. And I was lucky enough to go through this. I work as professionally as a copywriter, creative director in advertising agencies. Already mm-hmm. very highly female, right? So you're already talking about 60 70% female. But most marketing agencies still at the top are run by men, right? Or, or at least yeah. enough men are in there that it creates a, you know, a kind of diverse thing. It still works the way that every institution you've ever worked in in your life, it kind of has the same vibe. I worked at one agency that was a pharma agency that was like 85% women. All the leadership was women. It was a completely female hierarchy. It was a completely female institution in every way. It Mm -hmm. was completely different than a normal company. The way it worked, you just put it exactly right. The Mm -hmm. point of everything was political. And the, yeah. the, the the final product of the company was the company. Like it was yeah. like everything everybody did was to make the company a nicer place to be, which you can't necessarily blame women for that instinct, right? It's like, okay, their instinct is to make the house a nicer place to be or whatever, make where, wherever a nicer place to be. But when they all get together, it tips, you reach a, a tipping point and it tips into a straight up longhouse. It tips into a different thing entirely. Like the amount of work the women who worked at this company did a day was like almost zero. Oh, they just had meetings all day, every day and no one cared. Like there was no, there was no maintenance. There was no monitoring. There was no like, Hey, you spent seven and a half hours on the phone today and 10 minutes doing work. Like, isn't that bad? There was just no accountability at all. And I I just think that like, when we're talking about the the brick wall and the whatever's going on, the one or at least at least one of the very interesting things about this power structure is when it reaches a certain critical mass of women, it's going to tip into a different thing entirely. And it's going to die immediately. It's just going to like collapse because it's going to stop production. Like production will not occur. Yeah, I mean, I think that the technocrats think that AI is going to fill the gaps here. Yeah. That's their plan. I don't think that will ultimately work, especially when it comes to things like you know political conflict, which will eventually erupt in, in this sphere. Uh, and you know, when that happens, all bets are off. But the the it, it doesn't seem like these companies are stable. It doesn't seem like their business models are stable or that they really do anything of note. No, they don't and me. so, yeah, I mean, this is going to be something that, you know, but they're going to seems creep- like it has to collapse. No, but- they're going to creep into the actual elements of production. And, and then once that starts happening, then the whole thing, it's just going to like collapse instantly. It's not even going to be like, there will be no f- slow decline. It'll, once it trips the wire, it will or trips the it, once it gets to a certain number of women in the thing, it just will not work anymore. Anyway, uh, all right, let's just change gears here really quick. 
So I want to talk about art. Um, sure, sure. You did had a great intro to your thing where you talked a lot about Guillermo del Toro, who neither of us can say. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo and, del Toro. Uh, yeah. And I completely agree with what you were saying. You were saying he has these hollowed out uh, versions of, of movies we know, The Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, that are just shit lib, uh, vague shit lib um, allegories with no meaning besides that there's just like this central racist and everybody has to like band together against the central yeah. racist. But they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They, they have amazing production design, amazing vi- uh, visual effects. Well, I'm trying and- to. It, it, the thing is, it's it's not like he um he uh, he, he he took this from the, the the Scandinavian artists. I'm forgetting which one it was. This is it. Uh, this is uh, John Bauer. That's the artist wow. I constantly associate with uh, uh, the artistic direction of uh, Guillermo del Toro. There are these beautiful woodcuts of like trolls and oh, cool. goblins. Yeah. And, and you know, John Bauer, if you want to Google him, uh, he is uh, this uh, 1915 uh, artist. And you know, that's very much where you, the, the oh, Guillermo del Toro cool. look comes cool. from, right? Um, yeah, it's kind of uh, like how uh, Ridley Scott took everything from H.R. Geiger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like, you know, I, I, I do want to kind of compliment him on his, his creature features, uh, you know, the, 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 the look of his elves, the look of his, uh, his, his, uh, his demon from uh, Pan's Labyrinth was an amazing horror trope uh, taken straight from uh, classic children's fables, uh, you know, the, 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 the chaotic demons that live in the underworld. Uh, that that you know, but but the thing is, is that this is integ- this is not well integrated into a world. It's it just kind of there, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, you know what what is what is the 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 original demons that he's based? The White Devil is a perfect example, right? Like the 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 lesson of the the demon as it would exist archetypically is that the 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 indulgence of the pleasure. Uh, allows you to become the feast of of the demon right Ooh. so like you eat the feast the demon eats you right and you know to to go back to his uh his most recent venture in pinocchio right uh everyone will remember this from the disney version although i think it was slightly less prominent in the original fairy tale i i the fairy tale is a lot different from the disney one but but you know this is actually very much in keeping with the beliefs of of the I'm forgetting the guy's name who did the original Pinocchio. He was an Italian nationalist from the 19th century, <laughs> and and you know I, I, you know he doesn't really like most Italian nationalists. He doesn't really map on to the 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 political order of our own day, which is thoroughly Anglo. But you know it's a mixture of of some beliefs we would consider very right wing and some beliefs we would consider very left or not very left wing, but you know left wing for his time. Right. And, and you know, his, his idea was like young men go off and they become jackasses in, you know, by indulging their pleasures. And then Disney really steps into this in their version, right? Where there's just these horrific transformations of young children into donkeys and are crying for their mothers and all this stuff. And the message is very much the same as as the demonic figure in in Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. If you submit yourself, if you become a slave to pleasures, the pleasures will end up consuming you. And you know this is true in our real life. The, the, but does Del Toro believe that? <laughs> like this, Del Toro does not believe that the indulgence of pleasure leads you to become a monster. Because the message of all of his movies is that, like, 
some people just need to learn to indulge their pleasure more. Like there's a horrific scene where in, in like, you know, the, the there's sort of a body horror scene in the shape of water where the heroine sleeps with a fish creature. Yeah. Like this is a fish creature that like is borderline not sentient, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, maybe he's sentient in his own way, but like this thing does not understand that you don't eat a cat, right? Like don't eat the cat is something that we're having a hard time communicating to. Yeah, <laughs> but you can bang it. You, we can bang it. Right? Yeah, we can still bang. We can bang it because like this class of creatures, like this class of people, because they are this progressive protected group, like all of their indulgence and pleasure is like valid. Yeah, yeah. And right. um and, and and so like what would ordinarily be a moment of pure horror. Uh, like a, a, a pure element of disrespect to this creature, which, which should be treated as an independent entity on its own terms, is it's being superimposed into this romantic fantasy of this woman. It should be a moment of horror, but it, we're expected to applaud it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and so you have these like the Pinocchio thing and, and the Pan's Labyrinth. You have like these these classic tropes of fairy tales. They're being introduced into this framework that just does not fit them. Not yeah. all. Yeah, right, right. They're being kind and, of repurposed into this this thing that it, doesn't make any sense. And that's why those movies are so hollow and empty. And yeah. Not very successful. Yeah. Yeah, and they're very they're successful in the fact that they, you know, they appeal to an audience, but like nothing has like nothing feels like you've really been like, oh my god, I have to process this. Um, you know, I think that if 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 a if a hard fairy tale just kind of held the lens to the face of modern man, we would kind of react in horror to that. Which I think so much of you know horror kind of does this implicitly, but but unfortunately, millennials are people that need to have things spelled out for them, and unfortunately, the only people that can suffer in progressive fairy tales are these. You know, stereotypes of yeah, 1950s dads, right? Is the white guy, the right service guy. So, so would you say you have a great quote that popular politics is the destruct, destruction of the creative will? I don't know if that's related, that seems related to what we're saying because we're talking about creativity, we're talking about art, we're talking about the act of creation. Is Del mm-hmm. Toro essentially a political actor? And is that what you mean? Do you mean that his creative will has been destroyed by the fact that he is a political actor? No, I don't think he's a political actor. I think he's just kind of repeating back what, you know, the elites kind of want to hear, which is that like there they were evil men, but they were all white and straight and fascist and they lived a long time ago. And it, it, by and once you're flipping them the bird, you can basically do no wrong, right? So, but is that propaganda that he's making? Or it sounds like you're saying that a film like that is not propaganda. A film like that is just bad. And it's bad because he is trying to set up a bad guy in a way that just is empty and ineffective. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the ironic thing about this process is that uh, I guess when I think about propaganda, I think about things that are sort of compelling and that invite you to believe the the thing. Uh, that 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 like a new thing that you didn't believe before but the stuff that's coming out of hollywood is kind of it feels like emotionally copy uh, there's a channel called blackpilled which is you know he does the, these movie reviews for old movies and um he revisits things like forrest gump and uh norma ray which would be two great examples now these are movies that for our parent generation, like they, they were deeply moved by these movies like Forrest Gump and, and Norma Ray. 
this uh, these are classically propaganda. Like the, you, you look at them with a discerning eye. And you see that they've inserted all of these sort of leftist messages about like who the good people are and who the bad people are. Uh, you know, a classic example is in Norma Ray. Uh, it's this um, this Jewish intellectual that comes into sort of this very explicitly poor Gentile working class community, and, and the movie treats like these poor workers, which is like the most utmost contempt for their culture. They're just seen as like completely ignoramuses that live these unauthentic existences. It's like a Borat treatment, basically. Like he portrays those workers like you know the the guy who does Borat portrays people from Kazakhstan, like yeah. these ignorant people, like these peasants. Yeah, and like and and and, and like people ate this stuff up, like they yeah. actually took to it. Yeah, wow. You know the thing, and the Forrest Gump would be an example too. I'm like Forrest Gump. He he goes through the '60s. And he gives you sort of the most whitewashed boomer friendly version of the sixties where like the lesson of the sixties was like, it was all great, except some people took it a little bit too far, but in the end, like it all sorted out because like we're a breeze in the wind and, you know, progress itself is going to kind of blow us in the right direction. We're going to kind of stumble backwards on wholesomeness just because that's the movement of history. We're like the leaf in the wind. Uh, these are sort of like these would be like effective propaganda they actually capture the imaginations whereas no one who watches del toro's shape of water i mean nobody who's like we all understand that this is sort of progressives giving us their worldview and the people who like it are already on board and they're kind of coping with the fact that this worldview doesn't make sense anymore well right so i get propaganda but it's sort of like you know convincing yourself that you made the right decision right but propaganda isn't – I mean, propaganda just comes from the word propagate, which is a yeah. church thing. I mean, it started with the church, with I think the Catholic church, I want to say. Like indoctrinate, right? Yeah, yeah. it just means to propagate it's, your message. Yeah. Um, so I don't think you can necessarily define propaganda by how good it is, right? I guess sure. what I'm trying to say, say is like where is the line between propaganda and art today? Like uh, this, so, you know, there's this whole category of movies. Somebody made a great meme of it the other day. That's like civil civil rights revisionist fantasy. <laughs> and it's like, there's a whole bunch of these movies. It's like um, uh, Hidden Figures. Did you hear about Hidden Figures? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, well, I actually haven't seen it, but I no, saw all the trailers. I, I I, there's so many it, movies like that, right? It's telling us that like black women are the reason we went to the moon, right? Or they'll be yeah. like, like Selma. All these movies, they tell... It's canonization of the black mm-hmm. people from this past. And they all have the same kind of cover, you know, they're, and it's all the same thing that you're saying, like some, you know, group of Jews comes down and helps out to, you know, like help, help out the black person to fight against the evil torch wielding, you know, like conservative guys. And yeah. that's every single one of these movies is the same thing. Are those even movies or is that just, I mean, are we basically, that is like, as you're saying, Red Guard propaganda. Like, that's not even really a movie, is it? Yeah, so man, in order for art to be good art, the the artist has to kind of reveal some issue that they're struggling with. I'm not saying that art can't be hopeful. Like, for instance, if I had a piece of art that was like, we have this deep problem, I don't know how to solve it. But in this sort of idealized version of art, like, they win. <laughs> a classic example would be like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, yeah, yeah, which is sort of like implicitly like the 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 struggle going on in Lord of the Rings at all times is sort of 
a, 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 an age of myth, myth and fantasy slowly being abolished and people fighting back against it. And in the end, the age of myth is abolished, but not in the most horrific way it could have been, right? It could have been completely abolished. And now sort of like a thread of the magic kind of carries on, uh, but really only implicitly, right? And, and that's sort of like the reason why this resonates with people is that it, the, Tolkien is struggling with a sense of loss and a sense of of mournfulness and when when Tolkien sees the armies of Mordor emerging and and marching forward and kind of uh you know seeding what was once like a wholesome land with destruction he is reacting to a crisis that I think was very viscerally felt when when he saw the ravages of World War One. Yeah, and you know ultimately I think that the message is hopeful, but like he's struggling with something. Um, the artists of most modern movies aren't struggling with something. They're, they're, they're not, I'm sure they're afraid of something in the future. I'm sure that they have some path that they, that they want to, you know, um, uh, take to sort of like rectify what they, they know is actually going to be true. But, but they're too sort of, they're in love with their own uh, self-insert images uh, too much to really kind of take stock of that. I only watch a few episodes of this show, but a classic example would be something like Girls, like um, Lena Dunham's show. Like the 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 purposeful, like the artistic dimension of that show is like modern millennial women lead squalid lives, <laughs> and and the 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 only way that catharsis can be communicated is if like you 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 come to some conclusion by which they realize that living squalid lives and stop living squalid lives. Uh, but but that's the the problem is is that Linda Dunham is too invested in her own life to ever make that an explicit right. Point that's what's so of catharsis funny. It can't end. That's a, that's a, yeah. So it's like you know this yeah. contradiction has to be maintained. They can't or, learn any lessons. They can't learn yeah. any lessons. That's the thing because it has exactly to be they can't. And this is such a this is such a female thing. You look at like also another sector oh. of propaganda. Uh, Jane Austen pulled this off very effectively. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I know mean, about Jane Austen. Jane, no, no, I mean like you know you look at a character like how could you you look at a character like Fanny Price? Okay. Jane Austen did not. Wait, write who's Fanny scenes, Price? Right? I've never read any Jane Austen. Nor what? Okay, so Fanny Price is the heroine of Mansfield Park, right? Okay. And uh, and maybe she's. I mean. You know, the, these these characters like Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice, like they kind of overcome their own narcissism. And, and admittedly, this is a very nineteenth early nineteenth century form of female narcissism. But but Jane Austen very much believes that that this instinct inside her uh, for for pride has to be suppressed, right? So that the, the, the greater virtue can spring forward. Uh, modern female artists have no cons. I mean, some of them do, obviously, but but like the the but ideology no that prevents yeah. them from pr- expressing this, right? Yeah. Um, no, I think seen, like did you see Promising Young Women? Woman? No, I haven't. No, uh, perfect propaganda film is we're exactly talking about right now. Yeah. So it's about a female, basically serial killer who kills men who wrong women, right? <laughs> so in every, well, there you go. Right. In every male version of this, so like American Psycho, any male serial killer movie, right? The male serial killer, there's some little element of humanity to them that we that we kind of we literally me, right? I just had that Kino Corner mm-hmm. guy on my on my podcast. Uh, you know, that we think, oh, we're just like that guy. But they get completely destroyed. They do things that are terrible. 
And we learn at the end of the day that this is like not the path that we're supposed to go on, right? They learn some yeah. kind of lesson. This movie is so insane because she's a female serial killer, but she doesn't actually do anything wrong. Like she's somehow, <laughs> she's super hot, first of all. So she's not like fat or anything. Yeah. You can't be that. We're all super hot. And the way she interacts with men is like, she doesn't actually kill them. She just like makes them think she's going to kill them. And then they're really scared and embarrassed. And yeah. like by the end of it, there's no. And they all deserve it. Probably. Yeah, they sure, all deserve right? it. And by the end of yeah. it, it's like she does that for an hour and a half. And then the movie ends. like there's no there's no <laughs> arc. Like, you know, it's just like here is the perspective of a you go, movie. girl. Yeah. Just... <laughs> like, what, what, what conflict is the artist feeling like in there? So like the fact that they're not appreciated enough. The fact that they like to do this, this is like an indulgent fantasy. Yes. This is like oh, no, the arc like, is uh, the you world. Know. The arc is outside of the theater. The arc is like what yeah. she's doing to the bad men who are watching, it, you know, and and that's what makes it like such a propaganda, which is so funny. Um, all right, let's let's finish up on uh, this one question that I we can't leave without me asking you because mm-hmm. it's it's just such a great uh framework. Um uh so you have go, you've said that you raised this question of what is a victory for us for our side and what is not a victory, and you use this framework that Curtis has Curtis Yarvin has laid yeah. out for us, which is a victory is only a victory. So a victory would be, for example, Roe being overturned. That's yeah. only a victory for our side, right wing people, whatever we are, if it makes further victories easier. Yeah. So, I mean, that feels like a very bad definition of a victory. I mean, no offense. Like, is does that make sense? Because aren't there? I mean, think about why, why would you? Why would you say? Because uh, you know, if a victory makes future victories harder, then your victory is already abolishing itself at the moment of its realization. Well, it's right? like any movie, right? Think about Braveheart. Like in the beginning. Yeah. The victories that they win in the beginning make it much harder because they've struck a first blow and now all the energy of the thing is going to be pointed against you, right? Like, mm. it, right? Like a first victory, inevitably, the next victory is going to be harder than if you hadn't won the first victory because now the enemy is paying attention to you. Fair, fair enough. But I mean, presumably you're building an army that's making your side stronger, right? Right. So, I mean, like, you know, in, 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 in less... You know, unless that victory caused people, you know, I, I would consider your first victory to be making yourself stronger because the king of England always had an army and you never did. So by winning the first victory, you were obtaining one army. You know, maybe you'll have to fight a bigger army, but your army is bigger. Yeah. Okay. The problem with the conservative movement's victories is that every time they win a victory, their army gets smaller. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the and i don't think roe was a defeat i don't think road really changed much the roe overturning really changed much at all and to be honest it was a necessary transformation that the pro-life movement had to do like they had to kind of get over this sort of like horse racing around the supreme court justice and start talking about how we build on the ground infrastructure to encourage people to form families and to not get abortions so in some sense you know this was them kind of getting their head in the real game and this is a necessary step but but i don't think it made them significantly larger you know it didn't it didn't do it didn't and it didn't force blue america to accept conditions of surrender like who in blue america who what pro-life so when for instance when 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 obergefell v hodges happened and 
that was the right one, right? When gay marriage was legalized in 2015, a number of prominent conservatives like just bent the knee to gay marriage and said, this is a fait accompli. This is the new normal. We have to get used to it. This is the way things are. How many pro-choicers when Roe was overturned went, well, you know, abortion can be illegal. That's just the way things are now. Did anyone do that? Who was convinced? Who who was actually brought over? Convinced or just convinced to bend a knee? Convinced to bow out. That's a great point. Yeah. Nobody was, right? And, you know, the, the, you know, you, and, and actually, you know, like Twitter was a better example. Like when the left, the, the left cries, it's like a crocodile. It cries when it's about to eat you. So the fact that they're really upset is not an indication that they've lost. Usually I found more often than not when leftists lose and they really lose, they start getting really quiet. They start shutting up. Right. And they, because so most be one of those in the modern left, for them? Like, give, Twitter, give, give me Twitter. A Twitter. They all shut like they they complained about Elon Musk and they still do. But you notice that when they lost Twitter, start getting a lot more quiet on a lot of things. Yeah. That's, that's... The, the 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 volume on especially the stuff about the the vac stuff. They really started shutting because they realized that like their their control over the narrative was weakened and they might not be on the winning side. That is you know? really true. After Twitter, the vac stuff like flipped almost. And yeah, I think that that's really that, that's a great point uh, for sure. Hmm. They started making concessions. He started having articles like, "Oh wow, you know, you know, maybe we just need to kind of let bygones be bygones because." They're worried that they might lose control over the narrative. And I don't think that actually came to pass. But but you'll notice this kind of thing, like when when the, the left is made up of opportunists for the most part at this stage. So if they feel like they might suffer for their opinions in a meaningful way in the future, then they're gonna like just not express those opinions. Yeah. But aren't <laughs> and, things yeah. like like the row thing? I so I, I still disagree with Curtis on the row thing because Aren't certain things? Um, you've talked a lot about the the uh, the ideal method for our side is uh, eyes, blue state eyes, and red state heart. Yeah, and by that I'm interpreting you to mean we need to have a brain that thinks Machiavellian, and we need to have a heart that thinks passion, emotion. You know, doing doing the right thing. And, no, that's that's less poisoned by modern ethics. Yeah, modern right. Religion. Right. That, yeah, that's less poisoned by the muck of what we have to deal with, right? Um, and you know, there are a lot of people in red states that are thoroughly paused, and there's a lot of people in blue states that are thoroughly illusioned. But just you know, taking the best from both worlds—that's really you know where where they're bringing up the front is that the 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 blue states tend to have the people who can kind of see things a bit better, yeah. clearer, I should say. And the red states have the ones that have the the elements of their souls that are less touched by by this this modern gibberish, for the most part, on average, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's that that's really fair. But something like Roe, isn't there I live there's some philosophical term for this. Isn't there some like isn't that an a priori victory? I know that we're going to talk about the numbers of of uh, dead babies. You know how many babies are actually yeah. dead because of it. It's the, the, the victory is to make abortion something that is not done, not to move the laws around. Like if you could eliminate all abortions without making the law, I'd do that, right? right. Well, no, but as you said, I think the the true victory would be living in a society that doesn't. 
make sex into a friggin you know yeah a, a, that's you know a, a, the thing you do on a every day a million times it's a disgusting yeah, you not know. having to find yourself by sex i mean the, the, right. the problem is like this is a broader sexual culture yeah. and targeting it on abortion is kind of putting the car like you know what what are we going to do are we going to have like you know promiscuous sex and then just kind of leave women with the bill right mm-hmm. for this all like raising single children because abortions illegalized but nothing else but our culture has changed like obviously not that's ridiculous well but that could be but what what how else would we it's do? unsustainable but like how, how would we win so walk me through how we would actually win that victory now well, I, I don't think that this victory can be won without sort of a complete destruction of the cathedral. Uh, this is what, you know, I hate to constantly be copying from Yarvin, but no. he does create my famous expressions. So his idea of a regime complete problem. The problem is that currently our modern sexual culture is considered high status. When modern sexual culture is considered low status, that will change. So if a woman says like, oh, I, you know, I'm unmarried and have had 34 sexual partners yeah, in yeah. my life and then, then people are like oh my god you know this is trailer trash what am i doing you know and i don't care if you've got a degree from you know brown or something like that i, I don't care if you're you know you used to be the the hr manager for for some silicon valley company you're just this is disgusting what do you, you know <laughs> how how are they even hiring such a low-class person yeah. once that becomes the emotion this will change very very quickly yeah nothing is like a millennials do not have very much sex this is not a very high libido generation we're not being compelled into these sexual lifestyles because people just can't control their their deeply erotic passions i mean this is not a very erotic age at no, all it's, it's sex- nothing is sexy sex it's sexless it's sexy right like sex- people people are literally going out and having sexual encounters because they want to cultivate a queer identity yeah oh yeah yeah they are right like they don't like it they don't they're not drawn to it because they're drawn to the body or the excitement or the romance that yeah. we're, we're really we're, we're reaching what poglia call like the the completely desexualization of sex yeah yes yeah, totally. this yeah. is you know camille poglia is very famous for this concept um and and it's absolutely manifested in the millennial generation was keeping this sort of lgbtq promiscuous stuff going is because of the high status of of sort of this degenerate behavior. It's being used as a totem to show that you stand close to power. Because if you're middle class and these sexual behaviors aren't destroying your life like they would for people in the underclass, then you must, by definition, be high status. Yeah, you know, it's funny. At Burning Man, they always say it's the sexiest and most sexless place on earth like you go yeah. to burning man and it's literally like a group of 10,000 people worshiping a girl's like ass as the sun is rising and she's like on you know like naked yeah, yeah. with like a thong on and you'd think like oh it would be ravenous fucking you see no one having actual sex like nobody yeah, exactly. actually has sex at burning man it's just like the world spectacle sex, right yeah without actual real sex yeah, I mean, there's, and it's all, all of us, there's no fertility in any of this either. Like, it's a sterile generation as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is, this is just something that, I mean, so we can create sub communities that, that idolize, that, that sort of idolize the cults, that idolize the family, 
and, and that that worship God and that value married women above sort of these kind of characters that emerge from this this gender ideology. But but for the time being, and, until this becomes macrocosmically low status, the idea of overthrowing the sexual revolution at a macro scale is going to be, you know, pie in the sky, really. But you you can see it kind of it, it, it could flip fast, right? If if the American government like were to become deeply humiliated and there was a revolution and the ruling class has changed, there's a circulation of elites. I guarantee it. All these women who have like advertising their sexual partners on TikTok, they'll delete all the videos and they'll transform into like you know they'll be Whole Food trad wives right, the <laughs> next day, right? And, and it will be a big secret, and like you know, it will be this 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 could flip in a moment if power flips. Yeah. Um, well, they'll be covering up all their tattoos, yeah. and yeah. you know, be, people did did this, and the the boomers did this, right? Yeah. Gen X did this to a certain extent as well. Uh, but you know, the, the reason this is, I think, the millennials think that the current power structure is eternal, and it's not. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, we okay. got to stop because I left my charger at the office and uh, okay. my computer's going back. But All uh, right. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. I, thank you so much. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure everybody actually, where is the most core touch point for you? Because I, I know you have YouTube and then how do people find you? Like, do you even- uh, So, yeah, probably everything's going to be on YouTube. I also have a Substack uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. at Fiddler's Green at Substack.com. And uh yeah, I'm I'm trying to kind of reorganize my content. Uh, right now, my community is kind of pushing IRL meetups, but we're we're not really at that stage where we're we're going out with a website yet. Uh, but uh, the yeah, I, the, my YouTube channel, my Substack are the two main ones. So yeah. you thank IRL you for having meetups? me on. Yeah. So what? you're doing a lot of IRL meetups. Uh, we had a conference last year and really? we are yeah, um, and then we are doing another one this year, a little bit later in the year. And then we're doing kind of like micro meetups just to for people to kind of hang out. And this is a project being done in coordination with a bunch of other YouTubers. What's the and, what is it um, called? Like what's how do uh, I- basket weaving? That was the uh, you may have heard of it in other contexts. Uh, I think um, Ed Dutton promoted it. A few other people have promoted it as well. Um, and <laughs> this is a project that's becoming uh, you know more more because deatomization is a core driver yeah. of of our problems. It, the the left wins atomized humanity. The the right wins yeah. humanity and community because humanity and community needs order. Yeah. And yeah. the right wing is the force of, of no. Order they want and us in our rooms, you know, clicking branded content, cutting ourselves, and you know, mastering yeah. all day. That's what they want. And, Wait, and what being sick, independent. How do I find the well, content? What is the conference? The conference is called the the Sildings Conference, and it's mainly in England. But there was an American version uh, that it was in Nash. Well, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, it was. It was in. uh, It was in Tennessee, and um, uh, yeah, you can find my talk to it uh, there on my YouTube channel. It's one of my posted videos. Uh, Prudentialist has one too. There's uh, you can buy the conference proceedings. And there'll be another one that occurs. I want to go. I'm, I yeah, I really want to this. yeah. I can't oh, find yeah, it. Cool. Google Soldings content concept. Nothing. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll forward it to you. Yeah, <laughs> forward to you. Um, okay. yeah, but yeah. Anyway, thanks for having me on. It was great. Thanks so much, man. I'm a cyber critic.